I want to start by asking you a question. Why is this world so beautiful? Why is the world beautiful? Have you ever thought about it? I think a lot of times we just take it for granted because it is a very beautiful world that we live in. But, but why is it beautiful? When you think about it, from a purely utilitarian perspective, and, and therefore the perspective that, say, um, evolutionary thinking would bring to the question, beauty in all of its forms really isn't necessary. Beauty is not necessary for the, for the basic functions on life and, and in the universe to occur. We, we need, so for example, we need food to be nutritious. We don't need it to taste good. We, we, we don't need it to even be pleasing to the eye, right? Flowers need to attract insects so they'll be pollinated. But I think all that's really needed for that is, you know, pheromones, scent. They, they, don't, they don't have to look so pretty. So, so why is beauty here? Why, why is beauty so pervasive in this world? I, I think that the presence of beauty is one of the great arguments for the existence of God. This world is beautiful, Christians believe, because God is beautiful. And he created this whole world to reflect his own beauty. And we, as, as human beings, I think alone, amongst living beings, are able to appreciate beauty and actually recognize beauty for what it is, beautiful. And we're, we're even able to create beauty ourselves Precisely because we alone in all of creation are made in the image of God who is beautiful and who created beauty. Now, I think one of the things that that means, and I realize that's a kind of very heady and slightly philosophical introduction, and you've maybe never really thought about beauty before. But, but I think one of the things this means is, is that there's a purpose for beauty. There's not just a result of beauty. There is a purpose for beauty and the purpose of beauty in the world is attraction. I think that's why God made a beautiful world. I think that's why God made so much beauty pervasively in the world. Beauty attracts the lover to the beloved. The beauty of the beloved attracts the lover To the beloved, my wife's beauty attracts me to her. And and the longer we're married, the more beautiful I see that she is and the deeper the attraction becomes. The, the, The beauty of nature, right, attracts us to get outside and to and to get into the outdoors. The beauty of God. His, his perfection, his, his moral perfection, his, his truth, and truth is beautiful. Well, that beauty attracts his people to himself. Wherever we find it, this is what beauty does. Beauty attracts the, the, the lover to the beloved. So I want to ask you another question. What's the opposite of beautiful? Think about it just for a moment in your mind. What's the opposite of beautiful? What what repels instead of attracts? What causes us to turn away rather than turn toward? I think the word that we often use when we think about the opposite of beautiful or beauty is is ugly, ugliness. But 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 ugly is a very, very shallow word that merely describes superficial appearance. I think if we want to understand what the opposite of beauty is, we need a much stronger word than ugly, a word like shame. And maybe this is another idea that you've never had, that that the opposite of beauty is not merely ugly. The opposite of beauty is shame. Now, in the West, we talk about shame as nothing more than a feeling, 
one that should be avoided at all costs. But but the rest of the world, uh, some of you are aware of this, to the rest of the world, shame is far more than a feeling. Shame is a is a state of being. It it's something that that can define a person just as much as beauty can define a person. Shame is the opposite of beauty. In 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 the sense that if, if beauty allows the beautiful one to to hold their head up, to walk confidently in the world attracting others to himself or herself, Shame does just the opposite. Shame is losing face. Shame is, is, is lowering the gaze. Shame is, is all about hiding and being shunned, being rejected. Shame and, and, and the rejection of, of turning away from actually has a very long history. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's first sin as they felt a new shame and so began to hide and, and knew God's rejection. But beauty and attraction have an even longer history than shame. And more importantly, a longer future. This summer, we're thinking about our life together as a local church. And we're using the book of Titus to do that. So what does our life together have to do with these two ideas of beauty and shame? Well, I think everything. Beauty attracts. Shame repels. If our life together is going to stay together, if our life together is going to thrive and and even grow as others are drawn into our community, then that means that Henson Baptist Church, we must lead an attractive life together, a, a beautiful life together. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1858, 1858, Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 to 10. Titus 2, 6 to 10. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Paul is continuing his argument that we began last week that sound doctrine should produce exemplary lives. Sound doctrine should produce exemplary lives. That's the point of the entirety of chapter 2. And he, he takes up Two more groups of people in our section. You know, last week we looked at older men and older women and younger women. Now he turns to younger men and to slaves. But something else changes as he, as he moves into these latter two categories. His, his, his concern of how this idea works itself out begins to shift from his concern for how it affects us internally to how it affects people on the outside of our community. Because, as he is going to point out, role models, these exemplary lives, should do more than model. They should attract. They should attract followers. And to do that, break this, section, this, this passage into just two different points. To do that, first, Paul says, we must lead lives that are unashamed before our critics. That's kind of the negative point. We must lead lives that are unashamed before our critics. That's uh, verses six to eight as he talks to young men. But then second, we must lead lives that are attractive in a fallen world. We must lead lives that are attractive. Here, here it is positive, attractive in a fallen world. That's verses nine and ten. All right, let me unpack that. First, we should lead lives that are unashamed before our critics. Let me read verses six to eight again. Similarly. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. 
In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Even though Paul doesn't get to the issue of shame and reproach until the end of these three verses, we can tell where he's going right from the beginning. Self-control in everything. And, and, And by the way, if you're reading the NIV, in the Greek, verses six to eight are just one sentence, just one sentence. So the English editors have decided to kind of break it up and that, that little phrase, in everything, they've put with the next sentence. But I think a better way of reading it is just similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. And at first glance, it appears that self-control is all that he wants to say to young men. You know, everybody else got a long list. Young women had a bunch of things they wanted to talk about. Older women, older men, a bunch of things they wanted to talk about. But here at first, I mean, it looks like really all he wants to say to younger men is be self-controlled. Now, in fact, he's going to say a little bit more to them, but had he stopped right there, it would make perfect sense, right? Isn't this what young men probably need to hear more than anything else? What puts young men in a compromised position so that they feel ashamed of their lives? What, what puts young men so often in the, in the crosshairs of their critics? Is it not the impulsiveness that is so often associated with younger men? Is it not, you know, a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of presumption, a little bit of pride? Young men, and some days I think of myself in this category and some days I don't, but I know that at one point I was. Young men are naturally eager. I mean, full of energy and full of themselves. I mean, that's just kind of what it means to be a young man. And so often they are convinced that if that if they were just in charge, everything would be better. Because the, the, the older men and the older women who all seem to be in charge are really out of touch. They do not understand and they're really just trying to hang on to, to power and control to, to, to keep us out. I remember, you know, true confession. I was a college student and I was a leader in my uh, intervarsity chapter, a college fellowship group. And this is a student, intervarsity is a student run organization, but we are just students. So there are staff workers, adults who, you know, who advise and, and give us all sorts of instruction and support and help. And I, and I, Remember to my shame, as, as a young college leader, telling my staff worker that she could speak at our leadership meetings only when we asked her to speak. And otherwise, she just needed to be quiet because this is a student-run organization and we're in charge. And I liked her. You know, I wasn't saying this to her because I didn't like her. I, I, I really liked her, but I was just convinced that we knew best, we 20-somethings. Paul knows who he's talking to. He's talking to younger men. And so right up front, he says, self-control. He's actually said this to all of the groups. I don't know if you noticed, but the older men have been encouraged to self-control. The older women have been encouraged to self-control. The younger women have been encouraged to self-control, but only the younger men get it right up front first. Like the elders in chapter 1, verse 9, who were to encourage the congregation in sound doctrine, Titus is to encourage, literally call the young men alongside himself in this self-control, which we, which we defined last week as, as the art of living wisely, the art of, of making decisions and executing on those decisions wisely in, in light of the truth, in light of who God is. Now, in fact, self-control is not the only thing that Paul wants to say to younger men. He goes on to make clear that Titus should offer his own life as a model of this kind of self-control. Young men should be able to look at Titus and see an example of doing good, an example that that attracts and and invites these young men to to basically copy their lives on Titus's life. And Paul highlights three things in in the verses that follow 
uh, that Titus should model as, as sort of a model of doing good, a, a model of self-control. He, he points out that they, sh- they should have pure motives, or Titus should have pure motives in his teaching. T- Titus should have dignity in his conduct. And, and Titus, there, there should be a soundness in his message that is beyond reproach, that, that will not bring shame back on Titus. So, so three things that Paul's concerned about here in terms of self-control. Motives, life, and doctrine. It reminds us of Paul's instructions to Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. It stands in stark contrast to the way Paul described the false teachers back in chapter 1 whose motives were greed, whose lives were rebellious, and whose message wasn't healthy, it was ruinous. And then finally in verse 8, Paul tells us why all of this matters, why the lives of younger men in our congregation really matter. It is so that, he says there in verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Literally, he, he wants the opponents to have to turn away in shame. Because even though they keep saying bad things, there, there's no basis for it. See, Paul has no patience whatsoever for the old adage, boys will be boys. Yes, boys will be boys. But they shouldn't, Paul says. Not if they're Christians. Not if they've been changed by the gospel. See, it's not that Paul is a party pooper here. It, it's, it's because Paul understands that, that we are in this together. Notice the use of, of the word us there. Titus, you and the men that are modeling themselves on you should live this way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And Paul there is not so much referring to Paul and his band, wherever they are, but, but rather the whole Christian community There on the island of Crete, the entire local church is affected by the individual lives of its members, even its younger men. We are a body. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one is shamed, we all bear that shame. This is something that we've actually just we've seen kind of illustrated even this last week, right? Sports teams understand this. Sports teams understand that the individual players and their actions off the field reflect on the team as a whole, and they take action. So, so just this last week, uh, the New England Patriots let Aaron Hernandez go before he's been proven guilty. Now, that's a big deal. Aaron Hernandez is one of the best tight ends playing professional football today. This, this is a big deal to let him go. But it appeared to be a no-brainer to the Patriots. Because even his accused actions were bringing such disrepute onto the team that they could not continue that association. So are churches to, to be held to a lower standard than NFL teams? Of course not. We are all wearing the same jersey. And so the lives of each one of us reflect on our life together as a whole. Young men, let me just speak to you directly. And, you know, like we said last week, it's a relative term. So if you feel like this is appropriate, then, then go ahead and listen to it, right? Paul highlights purity in our motives, dignity in our lives, and soundness in our speech, or, or probably better, our, our doctrine, what we say we believe. And self-control is crucial to all of that. So I would encourage you to just ask yourself some questions. Do, does your life bring shame and reproach on the church if it was known about? Or can you stand unashamed before the critics of Christianity? I mean, how often as young men do we mouth off like I did to my university staff worker? How often do we do that? How often are we willing to throw our our dignity and our self-respect to the wind just for the sake of a laugh? How, How often are we willing to throw respect away for just momentary pleasure? 
How often do we live impure, hypocritical lives? These are questions that we've got to ask ourselves if we're going to be honest as younger men. If we're serious about playing on the team in such a way that it does not bring shame onto the team. But of course, it's not really just young men, is it? It's all of us. That's why Paul talks about self-control for all of the groups. All of us know, if we're honest, all of us know the weight of shame. All of us can think about our lives, and, and maybe not our life as a whole, but some corner of our life, some part of our life, maybe some part of our life that nobody else really knows about, but we know about it. And if it were, no, if it were known, what we would know is shame. That's the human condition. But friends, the church is not an NFL team. Praise God. And this is where the church is so different. The only solution to shame that the patriots have is is to let Hernandez go and try to distance themselves as quickly as possible from him. Brothers and sisters, we have a better solution to the reality of shame. And that's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the solution to our shame. Jesus Christ lived a life that knew no shame. Every single day of his life, he was able to hold his head up unashamed. Not only for the way he was living his life vertically towards his father, but because every day, all day, 24-7, the way he was living his life horizontally towards all the people around him. Jesus Christ lived an unashamed life. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took that life and he offered it. He, he took our sins upon himself. And there, not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, the, the, the judgment that our sins deserved, but Jesus Christ also bore the shame of our sins. As he suffered the shame of death, as he suffered the shame of a Roman crucifixion, as he suffered the shame of God turning away from him. The father who had always been in perfect fellowship with him, turning away because of the sin that he bore. Your sin, my sin. Friends, this is the solution to our shame, that Jesus Christ has borne it. And he, through the shedding of his blood, has covered over it. Just, just like God made clothing to cover over the shame of Adam and Eve's nakedness. So on the cross, Jesus Christ fashioned for us much better clothing. Clothing bought with his blood. In which he now clothes us with his righteousness. Covering over our shame. We can hold our heads up. As Christians, not, not because we've never done something deserving of shame. No, we can hold our heads up because we've been forgiven. And the gospel now clothes us in Christ's righteousness. And the Holy Spirit now empowers us to live differently. Empowers us to, to live lives that, that say no. That, that renounce shameful ways. We, we have been set free, you understand through the gospel, from the tyranny of self. Self no longer, with all of its passions and its desires, masters us. But rather now, in the power of the gospel, we are able to govern ourselves. We are able to show self-control because of the work that Jesus Christ does in our lives. What's more, as a as a community of, of men and women whose shame has been covered over, we now have the great privilege of bearing one another's shame and covering over it again in our own experiences as we confess our sins to one another, as, as we take our sin and, and drag it out into the light of day with all of its embarrassment, with all of its shame, 
confess it to another trusted brother or sister and hear them speak the truth of the gospel back to us. Reminding us that Jesus Christ has set us free, that Jesus Christ has clothed us, that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. If you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing for you to consider what I'm going to say. Can, can you imagine no longer feeling ashamed for any of the dark corners in your life? Can, can you imagine not feeling ashamed, not because you've become shameless and you just don't care anymore, but because you've been known fully, completely, and loved and forgiven and clothed? That's what is offered to you in the gospel. If you'll turn away from your sin, not clean yourself up first, but be done with it and turn instead to Jesus and allow him to change you in all of your brokenness and allow him to clothe you in all of your shame. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it is for anyone. I'd love to talk to you more about this today. I'd love for you to talk to whoever you came with today. But most importantly, I'd like you to talk to God about this and to ask him to forgive you, to cover over your shame, and to give you the confidence of knowing that you are loved, that you can hold your head up unashamed in the presence of God. Young men, those of you who have already confessed Christ, how can you grow in an unashamed life? How can you grow in your self-control and in motives and in in conduct and and in doctrine? Well, I I would point out the the thing that that Paul goes to first here in in verse 7. Recognize your need for a model, a mentor. Left to ourselves as younger men, we tend to get ourselves into trouble. Going our own way, doing what we think is best, usually doesn't get us anyplace good. We need mentors. We need models as younger men. So so start by find find an older man that you respect, who is godly, that you will trust, and that you will listen to. I I can't tell you how thankful I am for the elders of this church in my own life, almost all of whom are older than me, both chronologically and in terms of just following Christ. Time and time and time again, I have needed to listen to them as they have given me good counsel, generally counseling me to be more patient, to exercise more self-control. And every time, brothers and sisters, they've been right. And most of the times that I haven't listened to them, they've been right. And I am thankful for them in my life. Young men, find guys like that, that you will listen to. And then open yourself up to them. That's the second thing you need to do. Open yourself up to them. Drag your sins in the light of day, as I, as I already said. And go ahead and just thoroughly embarrass yourself. And then let them love you. Let them love you, not only by holding you accountable for whatever areas you're struggling with self-control, but let them love you by, by allowing you into their lives. Follow their example. Copy your life onto theirs. Heed their advice, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe they don't understand what it's like to be a young man today. They they probably don't. But I don't think the sins that plague us are all that different. Maybe they come packaged in different forms. I don't think they're all that different. These older men in the congregation are a treasure of wisdom for you. Then third, I would simply say, stop listening to yourself and and start preaching to yourself. Listen to yourself less. Preach to yourself more. Listen to the lies and the temptations that go on in your head like a tape saying, if I if I mouth off in this way, I'll feel better. If I just give in to this temptation, it'll make me happy. You know, those tapes that just play in our heads. Stop listening to them and instead be in the word of God and preach the word of God to yourself counter those false ideas with true ideas and get guys around you to help you with it. 
As a church, this concern, of course, is what leads us sometimes to practice church discipline. Because someone is so consistently refusing to live a life that demonstrates the gospel. But, but more often and far more common, it's this same concern that leads us positively to emphasize discipleship. It's, it's Paul's big concern throughout this entire section. And, and, and so we want to be giving ourselves as models, as examples for others. Older men for younger men. Older women for younger women. And basically... If you're breathing and you're not one of two people and genders on either end of the spectrum, you just fell into all of that. Okay? This applies to all of us. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that that the elders of, of this church give themselves particularly to discipling younger men in the congregation as we seek to, to raise up the, the next generation's leadership. It, it's not that we don't care about women. We, we care deeply about the women of this church. Rather, it's in some ways, the elders are the men's ministry directors of, of Henson Baptist Church. Now, now Rick, as deacon of men's ministry, gives a lot of coordination and thought to that. But, but Rick's not alone in it, right? We, we, we've got about 12 elders, and all of them, when it comes to discipleship, are men's ministry directors. And three of them are paid. So I expect that we'll probably always have a paid women's ministry director. But you're already paying three men. So I don't know that we're going to add any more of the, uh, uh, paid men's ministry directors, but that doesn't mean we don't care about it. It means we're all in it together. All of us elders are doing this. Working with Rick, working with other guys in the congregation to see young men raised up. So in, in, in the elders' teaching ministry... And that goes to the church as a whole, men and women. But in our discipling ministry, our focus for the future health of the church is on these younger men. We want to be a church that holds its head high, unashamed, unashamed before its critics. Because though they disagree with our doctrine, and they will, they have nothing bad to say about us. So if we're going to live together, if we're going to draw others into our fellowship... We must together lead lives that are unashamed before our critics and young men. You're supposed to lead in this. But second, we must lead lives that are attractive in a fallen world. Lives that are attractive in a fallen world. Look at verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, it's almost impossible to read a passage like, like these two verses without the backdrop of our own nation's experience of slavery. And, and so I want to start by clearing some ground because we cannot move directly from our nation's experience to Paul's context. Uh, I want, I'm going to say five things quickly just about slavery. First, unlike other authority relationships, so government, marriage, parenting, the Bible never endorses slavery. And the Bible never grounds slavery in God's will or in the natural created order. To the contrary, again and again, slavery is one of the most common images that the Bible uses to describe the fallen human condition. I mean, think about Israel in Egypt, in the Exodus narrative, or think about Paul's long discussion of slavery in Romans. Second, while slavery was widespread in Paul's day, the sort of race-based chattel slavery of the American South was largely unknown to Paul, and certainly not the situation that he was speaking to. You did not become a slave in the ancient world because of the color of your skin. It was not ethnic Third, in the Roman world that Paul is speaking to here, slaves were often highly educated and accomplished professionals. They served as doctors, as police, as household and business managers, as educators. In other words, if you couldn't tell a slave by the color of their skin, you also couldn't tell a slave by their occupation. Yes, some slaves in the ancient world did work out in the fields or in the mines. But most slaves, and certainly the slaves that 
Paul would have encountered and that this church would have encountered on the, on the island of Crete would not have been doing those things. They, they would have been professionals in town. Fourth, while the New Testament never encouraged a widespread slave revolt, which would have been both folly because the, the penalty was crucifixion, and it also would have been discrediting to the, the young faith of Christianity to be seen as, a, as, as completely trying to overturn the social order. Nevertheless, Paul did urge slaves to gain their freedom if they could. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. He urged them to gain their freedom if they could. Furthermore, fifth, inside the church, Paul told masters that their Christian slaves were their brothers and sisters. And they should be treated as such. And in fact, the whole book of Philemon is about Paul urging a Christian master to set one of his slaves, Onesimus, free. Because that slave who had done him great harm had since become a Christian and now needed to be treated like a brother in the Lord and not a slave in the household. Nevertheless, the sad reality is that in the Roman world, slavery was a fact of life. It would be Christianity that finally brought slavery to an end in the West. It was not the secular enlightenment that did this. And honestly, it's something that no other religion or secular movement in the world has ever done. The, the, the end of slavery in the world, to the extent that it has been ended, is the result of Christians acting like Christians. And there's no other explanation for it. To this day, Christianity remains the most vocal agitator for freeing slaves wherever they may be found. And we do that for two reasons. One, every human being is made in the image of God. We were made, in other words, to be God's servants, God's slaves, not other people's slaves. But, but then second, we all were slaves to sin. We know what slavery is, even though we've never had shackles on our wrists. In our hearts, we know what slavery is. And God has set us free in the gospel from our slavery to sin. And so we want to see all slavery come to an end, especially spiritual slavery. Now, in the meantime, because it's going to take centuries for this to work itself out in the West. In the meantime, Paul addresses Christian slaves directly. And, and even though it's kind of shocking to us, I, I want us to, to try to put ourselves in, in the slave shoes and recognize the incredible dignity that Paul is affording slaves here in speaking to them directly. It would have been easy for them to think of themselves as second-class citizens, even in the church. It would have been easy for Paul to ignore their condition and simply lump them in with younger and older men and women, but he doesn't. He wants to help them think through what the gospel means for them in a deeply fallen world that they are experiencing and the difference that they can play in the church's mission. This is an incredibly dignifying thing that he does here. And, and what he tells them is to submit to authority willingly, not resentfully, and to be trustworthy, not skimming profits behind the master's back. In other words, he wants these slaves to live the kind of lives that would set them apart from their fellow non-Christian slaves. And so literally adorn the gospel with their lives. If the gospel is, is the neck of a beautiful woman, they are to be necklaces, beautiful, precious jewels across the gospel, adorning the gospel, making it beautiful. You see what's going on here to their master. They may just be slaves, but Paul wants them to transcend their condition to recognize that in the midst of their suffering, they are servants of God. And even in the midst of that suffering, submission to unjust authority makes the gospel of God, our Savior, beautiful. Simply because of the way they believe, because of the way they live. Now, does this mean that culture sets the standards? 
right? Since, since slaves should be respectful and Paul encourages them to be respectful so that people will think well of the gospel. Culture is actually in charge. No, not entirely. To some extent, we need to recognize culture does get some things right. Right? A concern for civil rights. The protection of children. Equal pay for equal work. These are all things that our culture is very concerned about and they're right to be concerned about them. And so for Christians, not even to live up to those standards is a blight on the gospel. But sometimes culture doesn't get it right. And we've had a great example of that in this last week. Same-sex marriage gives us a good example to think about this. As much as we want to commend the gospel through lives that are evidently worthy of respect, we are not free to go contrary to God's word. Now, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time convincing this congregation of that. But what I do think I need to say to us is that our commitment to God's standards on marriage does not mean that we now have permission to be disparaging to the gay community. To to the contrary, we want to adorn the gospel. And I I think in part that's going to mean that even as we continue to hold out God's standard for marriage, which is one man, one woman for life, even as we hold out that standard, we want to be at the forefront as Christians championing the legitimate civil rights of gay men and women. We want to be at the forefront of championing the full dignity of gay men and women Because we understand that they are made in the image of God, regardless of their sin. Now, now we we don't agree with how they're living out their sexuality. But then I don't agree with the way a lot of us are living out our sexuality either. Because a lot of us as heterosexuals are not at all holy in our sexuality. And we're saddened that people choose to define themselves by their brokenness. Define themselves by their sin. That, that, that should sadden us. But we understand that we're all broken sinners. Every single last one. of Not broken in the same way. We don't all struggle with the same sins. But we are all broken sinners. And so we love and we call people to the God who loves us in our brokenness. And who meets us in our brokenness and changes us there. We want to make that teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. And and at this moment in history, we have an extraordinary opportunity to do that. Through the way we live our lives under an authority that many of us disagree with at this moment. Invective and hatred and disrespect and, and those, those awful emails that get sent around and circulated. It, it should have no place in our community. Just because a community has an agenda that we disagree with. Does not mean that we should begin to disparage them as human beings. No, no we want to adorn the gospel. And so we want to recognize other fallen sinners as people just like us, people in need of a savior, people in need of God, just like we need him. President Obama, the Honorable Anthony Kennedy, and the gay community deserve my respect, even though I disagree with them on the question of same-sex marriage. And I would, I would further add the gay community in particular deserves my love, my compassion, my empathy. And so I adorn the gospel. And I invite you into that kind of work with me. How do we apply this passage then to us who are not slaves? Well, in some parts of the world we need to remember there are still Christians who are slaves. On the Arabian Peninsula, Filipino maids who are Christians are basically slaves in those households, and they are working hard to adorn the gospel. We should pray for them. Christian prisoners around the world who have far less freedom than even a slave 
are working hard to adorn the gospel as they submit to authority. Here at home, we should continue, of course, to work against modern day slavery wherever we encounter it. That would include the sex trade. That would include slavery in the garment and other industries. It would include child trafficking. But I think it also has real implications for us wherever we find ourselves under authority in this fallen world. And and that's going to be all of us. For many of us, that's at work. You know, we're not slaves, though sometimes our boss treats us that way. But we are tempted, even though we're not slaves at work, to 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 all the same things that the slaves here were tempted to, aren't we? Back talking, disrespect towards our boss, maybe behind his back, skimming a bit here or there, cheating on our time, giving only what's required and nothing more. Are all of those common temptations for us? Paul tells us that Christianity should make us better workers, not worse ones. It's true at home. Children, youth, students, you're not slaves, though sometimes you feel like it. I understand. I hear this from my own kids. You are under your parents' authority. You are under your teacher's authority. So are you a backtalker? Do you respect your parents? Is your goal to please them or to get away with as much as you can? Are you trustworthy? Christianity should change the parent-child, the student-teacher relationship, whether or not your parent or teacher is a Christian. We can think of other situations. We can think in civil society, how we respect our leaders. Do we disparage them? We can think about daily life. Do we offer respect to those who in countless ways have some control over our lives? You see, it's not that Christianity makes us docile. It's that it changes the way we think about authority and especially the way we live under authority in a fallen world. We understand that all authority is is ultimately derivative of God's authority. And though human authority can be abused, though though human authority can be corrupted and, and therefore must be held accountable, it is not intrinsically bad. It is not intrinsically to be resisted. That's the lie of the devil. Instead, it's to be received as a gift from God. And because we know that ultimately we stand under God's authority, both forgiven and protected by his authority, we can willingly submit to legitimate authority and even at times illegitimate authority. And when we do, we make the gospel attractive. Because we demonstrate that we don't need to save ourselves by rebelling against everyone and everything. Because God has already saved us and God is our savior and that changes everything. We should conclude. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Eric Little. It was made famous in the movie, The The Chariots of Fire. Do you know how his story ended? We all know him as this, this strong Christian who is a great runner. But after the Olympics, after he had won his gold... Eric went to China as a missionary. When Japan invaded China in World War II, he, along with thousands of others, of, of, of ex, expatriates, were, were rounded up and imprisoned in various compounds. And Eric Little was in a compound in Shantung. The conditions were brutal. They basically just built a big wall and stood guard outside. And the prisoners were left to fend for themselves almost entirely with almost no resources whatsoever. Needless to say, in the absence of law and legitimate authority, life quickly became a matter of survival of the fittest, ruled by the strong. There was another guy in that, con- that concentration camp with Eric Little. His name was, is, is Langdon Gilkey. He had been a teacher over there in China. He wrote a book, well, he kept a diary, and then he wrote a book about his experience after, after he was released. And, and in that book, he chronicles what happens to human beings in society left to themselves. And, and he chronicled the descent into a kind of hell in which self-interest and self-preservation governed everybody and everything. And his conclusion, Gilkey's conclusion... Was, was that the purpose of law, therefore, was not to state what is right 
and what is wrong. But the purpose of law is simply to, to restrain us from our naturally self-destructive and community-destroying behaviors because of our sin. But in the midst of this narrative, Gilkey noted an exception in the camp. And that exception was named Eric Little. He and his small group of missionaries who had utterly staked their lives on the gospel had gone to China to share that hope with people that otherwise they should have no interest in. And now they stand in a position of extraordinary suffering. And under the worst kind of authority, the brutality of might making right. And they stood out as a small band of men and women who were self-controlled, who continued to serve, who continued to love because of the gospel. Langdon could never forget it. Eric Little died in that camp. Langdon was released and wrote about it all those years later. What allowed Eric Little in the worst of conditions to live a life worthy of respect, a life that adorned the gospel? Well, it was the gospel itself. This is what the gospel does. It changes us to lead lives that make the gospel beautiful in the middle of slavery, in the middle of a Japanese internment camp, and in the middle of Portland. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we are so consumed with our own lives, so worried about ourselves and our immediate needs. We lose sight of what life is all about. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel, that you would cause it to come alive in us. We pray that you would transform us, even as you already have begun, that you would continue that process more and more, that you would use us in one another's lives to that end, that not just individually, but together as a church, our community would look at the gospel and see how attractive it is because they see Jesus through our lives and hear of him in our words. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.